right, folks, you are listening to the Yishai Fleischer Show, and I'm doing my show from maybe one of the weirdest places that I've ever done it from, and that is the security line at the El Al, uh, not the El Al, the Ben Gurion Airport. And you can say I'm literally standing in line to go through security. Now, I'm a kind of trusted traveler with a lot of nice status points and all this stuff. And I have never seen the airport mobbed like this, and I have no way to to get faster through it, which makes me feel like, you know, just like one of the people, which I guess is a good thing. In any case, um, I am at the airport, as was already said, and Baruch Hashem, I am heading, I was not expecting to fly out the summer at all, I was expecting to stay in Eretz Yisrael the whole summer because there's so many people coming in, but I was uh, offered an opportunity to speak or be on a panel at CPAC in Dallas. And Akadosh Baruch Hu, God gave me a few signs saying, I want you to head out that way. So I'm like, okay. So here I am in that security line. So what are we going to do? Are we going to do the whole show here like this? No, no. We've done a little bit of planning for you, my friends. And the show today is going to consist of two very interesting parts, both very interesting. One is uh, my talk with Tel Aviv International University students uh, from all over the world. Part of it is organized through Yale. They came to Chevron, and I know you guys enjoy it when I do questions and answers with uh, students like this. These are high-level MA students for security and politics uh, and anti-terror, whatever it is, all that stuff uh, at Tel Aviv University. So that's the first half of the program, and it's really my question-answer period. And uh, I think, I have a feeling you're going to enjoy it. And then I'll come back for a second and we'll uh, go to Goel Jasper's interview with Malka Fleischer on Return Again, a wonderful podcast about life in Israel. I was getting nervous here that I might have to like rush here because uh, the line's moving. But the answer is no, it's not moving. So there's plenty of time. Um, <coughs> so... Oh, by the way, it's three, 3 o'clock in the morning and I haven't slept. Uh, and I'm tired and hungry and discombobulated. I'm already pre-discombobulated for this trip. Thank you, Hashem, for every discombobulation. May we all be bobulated instead of discombobulated. I guess combobulated. I, I, I bless you all to be combobulated and not just discombobulated. Uh, so the show today is actually very interesting. It's got two parts. Uh, and we're going to start. Let's get right to it. Let's get right to it with uh, Tel Aviv International students uh, in Hebron. Actually, inside the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs is a room, and we stood there, or sat there, they sat there, I stood, and answered questions about the real issues, about the makeup of Israel, about the future of the conflict, etc., etc. So here we go. Let's call this the tad more political of a, of a discussion. Not overly, we're still in a religious site, but we'll just get a little, maybe, political perspective. First thing is, is that, as I was hinting at before, solutions. Let's not over-kid ourselves that we can figure out solutions so quickly and easily, uh, that we can come from different places and understand what, what needs to be done here. It's just, let's check that at the door. We don't always have solutions, and things are complex, and there's a lot of history here, and a lot of, there's religious complexities and historical complexities. It's not something you could solve by saying, let's just do this and that, and where history doesn't matter and religion doesn't matter I get that a lot of times that people are like you know these things don't matter all that matters is human rights and things like that that's a non-regional way of talking about things so that's number one number two is that 
I just want to give you a thought about how people like myself understand what the state of Israel is, and then you'll understand what Hebron is. Okay? How do we understand Israel? I understand that Israel exists on three pillars, stands on three pillars. One pillar is the Bible. Now, you guys might think that the Bible is meaningful, or you might think it's meaningless. And I can understand that. But for us, the Bible is meaningful. Also, the Bible is also a book of our history as much as it's a book of our religion. And so, to us, we think of this place, it has tremendous meaning in a biblical story, Hebron. And Israel has tremendous meaning in the biblical story. And then, in the biblical story, it was meaningful to other people. So, there were many people that made international policy based on the history of the Bible. Uh, just now, we celebrated 100 years since the Mandate for Palestine made by the League of Nations. That was based on Jewish people's historical connection to this land, which was based on the Bible. And by the way, our archaeology, the science of archaeology, backs up our claims that we're from here. You want to call us an occupier, but anywhere I throw a stone, I, I, I dig there, I find Jewish artifacts from 2,000 and 3,000 years ago. It's a little bit funny to call somebody an occupier like that. It's like, we're from here. It's a little bit, we're different because we left and came back and all that, but we don't see ourselves as foreigners in this land. So that's number one. Now, so the Bible and archaeology and history and international law is one. Two is nation state. Which one of you folks thinks that they live in a nation state? Which state is that? Germany. Is it a nation state these days? Yeah. It's an interesting question, right? Because Germany, like a Western European country, is on the one hand a German country and was really created by Germanic tribes that came together. But on the other hand, today, it acts like it welcomes everybody in and it acts like it's a total democracy. So I get confused about how I understand what Germany is today, as opposed to, for example, like a Poland, which is clear to me that Poland is a nation state. I'm asking you, I'm not, I'm not stating, I'm asking. I don't understand. What nation state means that the majority of the population is of a certain na nationality or ethnicity, huh? and that it identifies itself as a place that wants to protect, defend, and raise up that nation's language, national character, maybe religion, as opposed to an America, which is not a nation state. America is a state for whoever shows up there and gets American citizenship, right? The Czech Republic is a, is, is, has got its own language, its own people, and I think, I don't know what the numbers are, but it's very much a majority Czech. Ukraine, certainly. And Denmark, certainly. So That's why it's a little bit funny to me when sometimes, like, they don't always know that, that they live in a nation state that is really, really interested in national, uh, not just ethnic, but, but cultural, uh, you know, national unity. Any case, but not all countries are like that. For example, England today is not like that. No. Where's our British friend? Yeah. It's British not anymore, really. Maybe it was. Very, very important. It's very, it's very, very important. Because, what? Huh? No, because the reason it's important is because once you identify something as a nation state, you understand that there are sometimes threats to that ethnic grouping. And so, as I was saying before, the Kurds are an ethnic group that have created an autonomous, it's called nation state. And then in general, the, general, the beautiful idea of rebirth, the birth of nations, or, you know, Woodrow Wilson's 14 points and the idea of, of self-determination, that's very important. That's very much based on ethnic peoples living on their ancestral land 
with their calendar, with their culture, and they're like, what they understand is they're like the land that they came from. Now, when you live in America, I can tell you from as living in America, they don't have a sense of that at all. They're not from America. They don't think that way. You're not from an ancient land that you're, you're not like in like, you know, India or, or Persia or it's a different, it's a different relationship. It's a different relationship to a piece of land. It's a, just a different relationship. In America, you buy a piece of land, there it is, good, you know, but you're not like my peoplehood is from you. You're like, my peoplehood is Irish and Italian, American. It's just a different thing. And so the reason I say that is because stage two of what Israel is, the pillar of what Israel is, is that it's a nation state. A nation state of the Jewish people in a small parcel of land. And so the democracy aspect of it is secondary to the first most important principle, which is this is an ethnic national state defending its peoplehood and its landmass. And it's not here to necessarily give everybody rights and equalities. No. If you want rights and equalities, there are your nation states, you know, that, that are ready to take you in and supposedly you're, you're supposed to get your... Like, I don't, I'm not sure I want to give you total uh, equality to decide on the nature of the state. Somebody tell me now, okay, maybe Friday is the holy day of Israel. Well, no. It's a Jewish nation state. That's what we want. We want the character on our ancient land. We want the calendar, we want the Jewish calendar, we want the Hebrew language, etc. It's very, very important. With respect, I say this. With respect, I say this. Sometimes when we come from countries that are non-nation state, like, we don't always understand the value. I'm not, I'm not being dissonant. I'm being honest with you. I, I, as a person who comes from America, I can tell you, and even more like a Canada, which is a country which really does not have that consciousness, for good and for bad. For good and for bad. There's something very beautiful about living in Canada in that, like, you can have dual loyalties. Nobody cares if you love Korea. The biggest Asian population outside of Asia is in Canada. And there's something nice about that. There's something nice. And Brooklyn, who's from Brooklyn? Where's our friend from Brooklyn? Okay, there's something very beautiful about Brooklyn being a super multi-ethnic, like, you could be on the playground with Chinese, Koreans, blacks, Jews. It's like, it's, it's cool. There's something cool about that. But there's something to be understood about ethnic states. By the way, you're from UK, right? From England. Right. But right north of you is Ireland, which for all its extremely proud and haughty attitudes about Israel and stuff like that, about like what we should or should not be, they are an ethnic state. Like 98% Irish people. I say to them, if you love Palestinians so much, where does your, like, you know, there's, there's Palestinian expats all over the world. Where's your, like, love for them? Why don't you create some, like, if you think that they're being, like, where's, no, 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 no. We like our ethnic purity in our country, but you guys should do the X, Y, and Z. You can see I have a little chip on my shoulder. In any case, the, sec- the second pillar of Israel is that it's an ethnic national state. The third pillar is that it's a Middle Eastern country. It's a Middle Eastern country with Middle Eastern codes of behavior. Honor means a lot around here. Being tough and being able to show strength means a lot around here. If you, can, if you are weak and the other tribes sense that you're willing to give up on your land, that you're not going to make a big deal out of something, that you're not willing to say absolutely not, you're not willing to walk out in negotiations with your luggage and say, I'm out of here. If you're not like that, then they sense that you're like a bit of a Western-style sissy. You don't, you don't get the rules of engagement, and then you get, start to get pushed out. Israel's a Middle East country. It has to behave in ways that are Middle Eastern. When the Jordanians understood that the PLO was a problem for them, the same Palestinian authority, which is now the PLO, what do they do? And I think 72, was it? They killed 5,000 of them in like 
exiled them, you know what I mean? Just recently, Mohammed bin Salman had one day where they caught like a lot of ISIS folks and other folks. They beheaded 83 people in one day. Beheaded! 83 people. The world didn't say anything. Because they are a Middle Eastern country. And you say, do you really want to be like that? Well, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I think that it's important to be like a little bit more like this region. Because if not, you get walked all over around here. You got to be tough around here. That's just the way it is. And you could all day long be like, want to come in and be all nice and, you know, and democratic and pleasant. And, but it's not the way it works around here. And you have to know that. And within that, within that third pillar is the pillar of Israeli defense. Israel is a defense country. It's a defense country. It's a defense-minded country. We're also a post-Holocaust country. Which means, we're, again, it's part of the same thing. We're a defense country. We know what it means to be undefended. We don't like that idea anymore. And so therefore, we are an armed minority as our ethos. That's part of the ethos, is a fighting armed minority sense. We're not the only ones in the world that are like that. There's many people, for example, uh, even the Druze are like a tough, you know, fighting minority. And there's other ones. There's other ones like that in the world. There's other ones like that in the world. So uh, that's part of the ethos. These are the three. One second, I'll answer you right now. The three pillars of Israel are, A, the Bible which means also history, archaeology, B, nation state, an ethnic national state, and C, uh, and C, a Middle Eastern country with its defensive needs. So democracy is a value, but it's not a pillar. Um, oh, so just going back to the idea of like nation state, ethnicity, I, I'm not arguing that Jewish people shouldn't have a or that there's an obvious claim to this specific land for the Jewish people. But I guess my question is, acknowledging there was the interim period, thousands of years, where Jewish people weren't here, the reality of the world is much messier than us being divided into these, this is mine, this is yours. We can take India, great example. The like Muslim empire, the Mughal empire, built the Taj Mahal. So. Now there's a lot of Muslims who live in India. Who has claim to India? Is it the Hindus? Or what about the Muslims who live there for a really long So it feels like in reality, there's so much crisscrossing that how, I guess the people who are living here in the interim, like what's, what's their tie to the land then? Isn't it the same that Jewish people would have as well? Okay, I think it's a great question and an important question. I think that the answer actually boils down to um, I, I am a believer in reducing things to simpler models. Uh, I agree with everything you said. And there's no doubt that other peoples have a tie to this land. There's no doubt about it. But, in fact, there has never been a different state here, a different capital here. There's, never, there's been, basically it was a backwater of the Ottoman Empire, of Syria, Palestina, different names at different times. But there was never a thing here that made it into, there was no Palestine. That's a modern invention. Uh, there was no ancient Palestinians that didn't exist. There were various peoples, if they were, if they were the Turks, or if they were, if they were Mamluks, Egyptians, Crusaders, uh, Arabs from Saudi Arabia, and then before that, uh, Byzantines from Constantinople, and before that, Rome. A lot of people controlled this land. So what do we say? We say that there's no question that Arabs, some Arabs, have a tie to this land. But we say, we're talking about here is civil rights as opposed to national rights. 
I don't have any problem with Arabs having civil rights in my country. I want them to have civil rights in my country. As long as they're non-jihadists. As long as they're non-jihadists. Then I'm, I say, uh, welcome. You have right to your house. You have right to basic decencies and, and democratic values. Not full democracy, democratic values, and freedoms, liberties. How do you define, like, what's the difference? Because, because I think today we've smushed together a lot of stuff when we call it democracy. Democracy has many different forms. What's important to me is the democratic principles of freedom of expression, freedom of liberties, rights, rights to property, rights to travel, rights to own your property. Uh, freedom of speech is maybe one of the main ones. And so uh, that's, I think, what democracy is about. It's not necessarily, it's not necessarily one person, one vote. That's, that's a form of it, but that's not the, the heart of it, is the liberty aspect. In any case, my point to you is that Arabs should, could, will have civil rights, but not necessarily full democratic voting rights of equality where they can vote me out, because that would be silly. So that's my point to you, is that, is that yes, I do recognize other people's connection. And more than that, I'm gonna say another way to you, which is even deeper, which is, let's say you're a Druze. You are not Jewish, you speak Arabic. But you respect Israel. And you want to be a loyal, if not loving, but loyal citizen of the state. Fine. But you are a, you're part of our, not part of our ethnicity, but part of our nation. Because amongst the nation, there's also other peoples that come with us. If you're a non-jihadist, and you're in, 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 of that Arab or other minorities, of course. Just have your civil rights first and foremost. Maybe have allegiance or loyalty to the state of Jewish state of Israel, and you should live as a well-adjusted, successful minority. If, on the other hand, you are a actually a fifth column, uh, a jihadist with ideology to destroy Israel. If somebody says to you, "When did the occupation begin?" and you go, "1948," and means you want to get rid of Israel in toto, then no, you don't have to live here, even if you have a claim to the land. So I'm curious because, like, kind of regarding Kate's question, your answer to that, like, you recognize kind of like the nation of like the Arabs in Israel and in broader Palestine. But if how, how are you juxtapose that with, say, like the democratic values? Like, what what would be the point of like the first like first pillar, like archaeology, like you mentioned, shared history, the Bible? So because they also have that history here. But no, they don't have that. Like a, That's exactly the point. They don't have that. Okay, they don't. They have a history here. And not a systemic from, from deep things. Short history, relatively. 1300 years, that's long. 1300 years were all of Islam, but they were of various kinds for various people. They're all gone. There's no more Mamluks, the Turks who are in Turkey. You know what I mean? They're not, they don't control here. There was no Palestinian thing. There was Arabs that lived here, but they don't have any, there's no... It's, it's a completely different kind of thing. And the majority of Arabs that are here are actually here because of Zionism, because this was a place where there was work, and so there was a lot of migration. Were Palestinians, uh, 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 you know, like the Babylons, like Babylonians destroyed the temple, they renamed it Palestine. The, the Romans, the Romans renamed it Palestine. To, erase, to erase the connection yeah. of the Jews land. Yeah. So it was called Palestine, there were Palestinians. Well, they weren't here. self-identified well, Arab Palestinians. Also what I'm saying is like, yeah. anywhere you throw a rock, there's going to be Jewish history. There is Arab and Muslim history. There's no doubt about it. But, that, that is but, it's like, but first thing, let's distinguish that it was as a conquest. In the last, you know, Islam is a conquest religion by its own definition. And so uh, it, it conquered, and then it got unconquered. That's the nature of conquest. That's number one. Number two is that 
Uh, yeah, I don't deny there's Arab history. That would be silly. But I don't deny it at all. I do deny if somebody says, I have a superior right of self-determination in this land, I'm like, no, you don't. Nobody's got a superior right of self-determination in this land. You may have had property here, you may have had history here, but you never had a capital here, you never had a state here. There's always backwater for you. This is our ancestral land, and, and we are the holders of the superior claim, and we're going to defend that claim. Why is it superior? It's superior for many reasons. Yeah. Many reasons. But, but let me just finish this question. Just let me that, that was my only point on the shared history. Okay. There, there's, and that's what she said. Okay, you know, that's what she said. And I don't deny that there's history here. But I, I certainly deny the self-determination value of that history. Would you also say that there's like a Palestinian now nation state here in Israel? Or in Palestine? First thing, I don't believe that there's a Palestine. That's just me. Yeah, I, don't, I believe that there's an area ruled today by a thuggish gang called the PA, which suppresses decent basic rights, tortures people. That even, even the UN had just had to be like, all right, let's talk about Palestinian torture with prisoners. They were like, finally. So I don't believe that there's a nation state here. I believe there's a big ethnic group here. There's an ethnic grouping here. That ethnic grouping has come here, and there, that's a, that is a problem for me. But there is a big ethnic grouping here that is true. But I wouldn't call them a nation state. I would say, Inside of the borders of historic Israel, there's a large minority of okay. Arabs there. Why, what, what, what characterizes them not as a nation state? Where, say, they, don't, they have shared history. I'm just asking yeah. They have a shared value, they have history, they have shared language. I'm just wondering. I, that, I'm they have a shared language of the 22 Arab countries around them. They have a shared history. Many of their names, last names are Al Masri from Egypt other names like that that say that they really come, they don't have a shared history on this land. They have a shared now created, like a sports team. They now share the same flag and share the same thing. But it is really, in the way I understand it, is it's mostly an attack on the nation states. It's like, a, like you know replacement theology? There's a replacement narrative. That if you, if you, I can show you pictures of what the kids here, the Arab kids sell here. They sell pictures of what is exactly the borders of the state of Israel with the flag of Palestine. So what they're calling for is to replace Israel through what many Arab leaders have said, that Palestine was created in order to be an, uh, a contract to Israel. I don't think that it's a real deep shared values and heritage and history. I think it's an Islamic Ummah style shared history. And much of it is a war effort to erase, to replace Israel. That's how I understand it. I understand, me, I understand that Palestine is the attacker against Israel. Okay? Yeah, but there were some other questions. Yeah, did you want one? I answered it? Go. Yes? I don't know if this is a question. It's more, I think you're talking about... Just make it sound like a question with a question mark at the end. And okay. that'll be a question. No, I, I just think that we're talking about the issue all is that ethnocracy, meaning that it's one ethnic group that are controlling the majority or in, in the controlling apparatus. I think that's what you're meaning, right? What well, I mean, I, I certainly wish it wasn't like that. And, you know, that what you're describing is Bahrain. Bahrain is a Sunni minority controlling the Shia. First thing, we're still the vast majority. We're still 70%. So, so that's... It is where the majority of the Arabs are controlling the majority of the state. Well, I wouldn't be against that, that, uh, that designation, necessarily. But I'll tell you that... that like, I'll give you some examples of how that boils down to actual real life. For example, I, and I did write a New York Times article on this. Yep. 
which is five alternatives to a two-state solution. I think it's called, I, I sent it to the group. Yeah, there's different ways of, of thinking about this, but I'll give you an example. Let's say Hebron, Hebron here, would be an Arab city that everybody here had Israeli residency, but it would still stay an Arab city with an Arab mayor, with Arab courts, and they'd have their, let's call it, a Palestinian character. But they, and they would vote, and, or whatever they do, to raise up their muhtars and their mayors and stuff like that within. But they would all be Israeli residents. But you would, A, as a Jew, not be afraid to walk in there. And there would be no jihadism because that would not be tolerated. But they would have like a Chinatown, if you will, within the small state of Israel. So they're an ethnic group respected with opportunities, with their ways of doing it. Now remember, remember this very important principle which oftentimes is forgotten. There is not one, not one Arab democracy. Not one. And so before we are like, the Arabs want the vote. No. In the countries that they control, there's not one of them that, that they have voting of any kind to speak of. And one of you smart Alex may say to me, Tunisia. Yes, Tunisia is a little bit different, but Tunisians are actually not exactly Arabs and whatever, so forget about it. The point is, huh? Lebanon. Le- Lebanon, Lebanon is a country that has this... Lebanon, I would not... Lebanon is one of the most failed states in the world, A. B, it's a failed, horrific... There's killing there, there's, there's inflation of millions of percent. It's like... Forget it. And the voting there, the history of the voting there, anytime any ethnic group got the right to vote more, they were knocked off by the other ethnic group. Lebanon is a great example of what not to do. Don't be like, okay, we're all here together, so screw it. Let's just, everybody gets to vote, and I'll be fine. It's like, let's mush these people together in a room, and if fine, it'll work out. That's exactly what the Americans, in their stupidity, did within Iraq. They're like, it's fine. Let's just bring them all together. The Shiites, the Sunnis, the Kurds, it's going to be fine. Because it's fine in Brooklyn, so it'll be fine, you know, in, in, in Baghdad, it's fine, it'll be fine. Such, such sheer haughtiness and stupidity, you, can't, you cannot force warring clans and warring religions into one room and then think that with the American hocus pocus, you could make it into, you know, a peaceful place. Lebanon was, when I was a child, when I was a small child, a Garden of Eden. It was a Christian state. Okay, that's what it was. It was a garden of a small, one of the only Christian states around here. Are there any Christian states today in the Middle East? No, there are not. Because Lebanon was destroyed basically by Shiite proxies, by uh, weak Christian weakness, etc., etc., etc. Point is, is that Lebanon is a great example of how to undo a state by mushing everybody together and, and just doing the democracy hocus pocus like you know Rumsfeld thought about Iraq. That was, that was not, not, not the way to, to get things done. It had, Rumsfeld had a, you know, and I like him in terms of, you know, he's a funny guy, but like, had he had an understanding of the Middle East, he would have been like, Iraq, four zones, cut them up. Here's Kurdistan, here's Shiiteville, here's Sunni-stan, and here's, uh, I don't know, Christian, whatever. You know, here's the, the, the Yazidis and the Christians, and here you go, and do a nice separation of peoples, little India-Pakistan action, and maybe and a little Turkey-Greeks, uh, uh, you know, separation of peoples. That's how they used to do it, yeah, when the world had guts. So they would separate peoples out and be like, look, you're not going to get along. You're going to ethnically cleanse one another all the time. So here you go. You go to Greece, and you go to Turkey, 
and, and, and it works better that way. Uh, and, and of course, the Arabs, when the, when the Jewish state was announced, they were like, oh yeah? Get out. And they kicked out almost a million Jews from Arab countries. And what we should have done is probably kicked out the Arabs that didn't want to respect our nation state and say, you guys go to your 22 countries or stay here, but be loyal citizens of Israel. Now, these things might sound harsh. And they are. They really are harsh. They really are very harsh. But they're the way things work. Instead of the, the mosh pit of endless conflict that we have here. You had a question. Go ahead. Um, I Sorry. was wondering, With respect. just kind of, as far as the way that you live your daily life yeah. in this city, yeah. next to Palestinians, yeah. you have a 13-year-old daughter. 14 now. Yeah. 14. Yeah. So, that's an age and a half of a 14-year-old yeah. sister. Yeah. <laughs> Do you encourage her to be to build relationships with Palestinians? Do you ever see each other on the streets? Is you know, if she was like met this I don't know, is there any interaction between them? Yeah. Encourage that friendship? Like what is that like? Yeah, very good question. Uh, and so first thing is she grows up knowing that her bat mitzvah had that aspect in it. Just 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 that. Another thing is I'm always, you know, uh, doing my best, for example, tomorrow was scheduled to be, but it got canceled because of the heat, a cleanup be- between Jews and Arabs. I'm part of an organization called Habayit, run by my friend Yinon Dan Kahati, and we actually do Arab-Jewish interchange, and we were supposed to do a cleanup right above the Tomb of the Patriarchs and Matriarchs over there. It got canceled because of the heat, and I was going to bring my kids into that. We're going to do Palestinians and Israelis, Jews, cleaning up apart, and we honor our joint father together. So yes, on the one hand, there is 100% an effort to teach them not to hate. What language do you guys speak with Arabs? With Arabs? Yeah. Like, do they Hebrew or English? Hebrew or English. And some of us know Arabic, and that's always good. I, by the way, P.S., I'll give you an example, just, just parenthetically. If I was the boss of this country, one of the first things I would do is I would mandate the study of Arabic as a mandatory language in Israel. Like everybody, and you, you go to the Europeans, you know, and they like speak three, four, five languages like the Belgians. They speak like five languages. My Belgian friends speak Flemish, Yiddish, English, Hebrew, and French. And, French. and it's like, you're like, wow, you know? And the Dutch also speak, you know, they just speak it well too. They speak it really well. They speak English well. So in your education system here? They speak Hebrew and English. So you don't have any Arabic? Not, you know, it was the Israeli left that actually turned that off. You know, ironically, it's very funny. <clears throat> and you may, I'm not going to go deeply into this, and you may understand what I'm saying or not, but just on a very tight level, I'll say to you, the Israeli left are actually, generally speaking, they don't like Arabs. The Israeli right, like myself, we are actually more like Arabs and feel more connected to the Arab way. And so the Israelis, a lot of times, they sit, the Israeli left, they want to separate away from Arabs. But we don't want to separate it. We don't need that separation. So for us, I want my child to speak Arabic. I would like her to speak Arabic and understand the Arab ways. I actually think that'll make her into a better Israeli and better Middle Easterner if she understands the ways. And in Tel Aviv, they want to understand the ways of Southern France. And we want to understand the ways of the Middle East here, you understand? So the school system here is not implemented by like, the community, but by the Israeli state and therefore- It's by state. Okay, therefore it's been- The state, the state basically. And therefore, but they don't teach Arabic seriously. I think it's a big mistake. I would teach Arabic very seriously. And then I, pr- I promise you our policy would change also because we would understand a lot of the BS that we're being sold. You know, when you speak the Arabic, you understand the language and you understand how, how it works. 
Yeah. Wait, so, sorry, just back oh. to my question. Does your daughter have... So she doesn't have... Oh, 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 oh thank you. And I was going to say, but on the other hand, I don't want to BS you. Yeah. It's not like I'm teaching them to like love Palestine, Palestinians, and the whole thing. No. We have a, we have a conflict here. My daughter has to be careful when she walks the streets of Jerusalem or whatever it is. I have to teach her to be careful. She just finished her black belt in Taekwondo. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, That's right. And uh, very proud, actually. And, uh, and I certainly am not teaching her to be like all about like, love and acceptance. She has to know that Arabs have an, an impressive culture. She has to understand it. She can have acquaintances, friends, collegiate relationships. She has to not be afraid of them culturally and physically. But it's not like we have a lot of Arab friends. I have some. Yeah. We have some. I have a very serious relationship with Ashraf Chabri here and, and others. Uh, but it's, it's... Do they ever mix in schools? Or do they no. Do there are some pl- very few places that try that, but no. And it's, and it's very hard to mix them. The, uh, and with respect, the Arab world wants to, A, learn in Arabic, and B, learn Islamic ways. Sure. And the Jewish people want to learn in Hebrew and learn Jewish ways. So it's not really... There are all kinds of efforts to mix. Again, I'm involved with... Here I am, an ultra-right-winger guy, right. and I'm involved in normalization efforts all the time. Right. And I speak to sometimes lefties who say to me all kinds of things, like, you should do that. I say to them, I am involved in... Once a month I have... I've, I have Interfaith and intercultural meetings with Arabs and try to have find normalization and efforts. Like I have more under my belt of trying to find common ground with Arabs than any you know of these you know so-called two-state folks and all that. You and know. You find that the mixing works. Sure. Sure. Of course. Of course. There is definitely you definitely learn a lot. You definitely understand better. Sure. Sure. I am comfortable with Arabs. Yeah. Culturally speaking, I'm comfortable with their way. I, I you know it's more than comfortable. I'm. It, it's part of the way. It's right. part of this region. Right. Uh, and some of my Tel Aviv type friends, they are not comfortable with Arabs. Because they're not around them. Because they're not around them and because they're more, how should I say? European. So huh? not, European. Yeah. So then that said, would you say that like a step towards peace would be kind of um, more integration efforts and normalization? Like it almost kind of sounds like... A little a bit, American a little like bit, a little bit, yes. People. And they weren't mixing, yeah. and there was a lot of othering. And so do you think that a you know, step to progress is sort of being just normalizing sharing spaces? A lot of peace organizations do that. Yeah. Most of the time it doesn't yield anything. Mm-hmm. The truth of the matter is that peace here, from, a person, from my perspective, is through a clear sense of boundaries. This is my land. You will not encroach on this land. You will not teach jihadism in your mosques. If you want to teach jihadism, it's not going to work here. Go to Qatar, okay? It's not going to work here. And we're badass. And you will not be messed with in our little ethnic bubble, ethnic national bubble. And when you speak like that, people respect you. This is Jerusalem. I don't, I'm not dividing Jerusalem in half or anything like that. When you say you're dividing in half, that signals, triggers a thing like, these guys are weak. I've spoken to Arabs many times who tell me, how do I speak with Arabs? I say to them the following, and I'll get to your question, that's it. When I speak to Arabs, I always say to them, I say to them, Allah loves you. He's given you 22 countries, 400 million children, oil coming out of the ground. Allah loves you. But this land he gave to us, and it's even in your Quran that this land is ours. And look, with your own eyes, you could see that Allah defends us, since in all the wars that you attacked us, 
we always beat you. And we were always smaller than you. We were always poor, poorer than you. How did we beat you? It's the will of Allah. And people are like, whoa. And then, and then they come back to me always with, yeah, but you have given up the Sinai. You have walked out of South Lebanon. You're barely in Judea and Samaria and on the Temple Mount. You ran out of Gaza. You're shrinking. And Allah is with us and we are patient. That is a, what I just gave you now is a honest to God rendition of thousands of conversations that I've had. And so when you talk two-state solution, the signal is, okay, these guys are leaving and we'll get them down the line. We'll get them. And whenever you give up one inch of ground, because ground is sacred, uh, they understand that as weakness and it empowers their jihad. When you crush their jihad, when you say to them, these are the rules and if you don't play nice, you're out of here, then they're like, this guy's serious, we respect him. And we can, we can actually work with this guy. That's the Middle East. That's the way the Middle East thinks. Yes, ma'am. Um, sort of a two-part question. Firstly, uh, you were just, in the way you're speaking, do you therefore see the future for Israel being uh, all-inclusive of Judea and Samaria? Or do you see any possibility of a two-state solution? And then my second question is, um, what do you? What is your engagement with the international community, and also what do you think the international community gets wrong about their understanding of, you know, those that live here in Hebron, those that live in the West Bank or Judea and Samaria? Like, what do the, what does the international community not really understand? Certainly, I work against the two-state solution, and am an enemy of the two-state solution, and am doing my utmost to stop any such ideology. Uh, we don't want our New Jersey-sized land taken like Gaza was and then turned into a jihad forward base to destroy the rest of Israel that was done and we're against that and many more people that meet me on the airplane are just like why would you give your land to your enemies like simple people just like on the plane talking to me and like I think that's absolutely correct why would you give your land away to your enemies that's just dumb and it doesn't work and it only has created this is, did it create peace giving away Gaza of course not so that's one. Regarding to the international community, the first thing they get wrong is their obsession with Israel. Why are you so obsessed with this? There's so many worse places of issues in this world. It's such a joke. It's like you're so... And that obsession, they don't want to face it. Like, why are you so obsessed? What is your deal? Let's say if I was Germany, I'd be like, I think that we should declare neutrality about Israel issues. That's what I would do if I was Germany. I'd be like, let's as a state decide that we've got some messy history... Let's just like not, because there's other places in the world to worry about, like Ukraine, Russia, and a million other things. Let's just like deal, not deal with Israel because of our checkered history. Let's just like not. But no, there's like an obsession. There's an obsession, like, 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 like we got to get involved. We got to, sometimes for good, oftentimes for bad. I would just not. And I ask sometimes, especially European folks like, and, the, and the American style, State Department, Euro type folks, like what is your deal? Like why are you so... What is your, what, what is your, like, what it drives you to be so concerned about this? There's so many other things. And really, our, our situation is kind of stable, relatively. If you just add, look at the numbers, look at the situation, it's kind of stable. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, of course, the language of occupation is absurd. This was our land in history. This was a land decided at the League of Nations. This was our land... Uh, after we won it in the Six Day War in a defensive war, we purchased much of this land, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We have good title to this land. So what the hell are you talking about occupation? Just like, why don't why, we have something called the Israeli territories? 
That's what Judea and Samaria is. The, the West Bank is the Israeli territories. So let's just call it that. America's got territories, like Puerto Rico, with two million uh, folks living in Puerto Rico that do not have full democratic equalities. Do not have full democratic Do Do Puerto Ricans vote for congressmen and senators? No, they do. They do. They vote for non-voting. Non-voting, exactly, yes. So they have a very important distinction. They vote for... One second. Non, that's right. They have congressmen and senators, but they are non-voting. So they're there. They represent, and they say their thing, but they don't have the same vote. Mm-hmm. Wow, the greatest democracy in the world. They don't have taxes. Huh? They don't taxes. Fine. That's, that's a good point. That, that's, that's, a very, that's a very good point. That's a, that's a, and I have a millionaire friend who moved over to Puerto Rico. He's like, I don't care to vote. I just want you to get off my money. And, and they voted for Fine. I'm not saying that Palestine is Puerto Rico. I'm saying that even in the great democracy of the United States, there are different systems at play. There's a territory. Why? By the way, what danger do Puerto Ricans bring to the United States? The Puerto Rican what is going to take over America? Nothing. There's no danger. Right. But they bring no danger to the United States whatsoever. They are hardworking, good people. But the Palestinians, much of them have a jihadism in, in, in their ideology. And so there's a danger. My point is, is that, A, folks should check themselves and check why they're still so, frankly, uh, so colonialist in their thinking and so uh, obsessed. obsessed with Israel. What, what is your problem? And B, uh, there are other solutions. The two-state solution is not going to happen. Uh, and C, we're not occupying our ancestral land. That's not true legally, historically, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, we have some issues to, to work out, and we're going to work them out, inshallah, as we say around. Okay, guys, yes, last question. So I recently attended a talk um, by Ambassador David Friedman, who's the ambassador for Trump to Israel, um, and he was saying, which like, I, I definitely understood his point, um, sort of what you were saying is that there needs to be clarity and that Israel often lets like decisions happen to it instead of playing an active role and having an active vision as to like what is the future of this country. And so my question for you is if you had a magic wand and you could kind of create that clarity like realistically because there are, you know, Palestinians who live here and there is the international community that you have to account for, and secular Israelis, and people who want democracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think is sort of the clarity that is required or desired? I would give all uh, Arabs in Judea and Samaria West Bank residency. I would make it that uh, Israeli Arabs, uh, from here on end, uh, would gain residency and only a pathway to citizenship if they so proved uh, loyalty uh, to, to a Jewish state of Israel. I would make Jordan, uh, which is Palestine de facto, into the Palestine that everybody's talking about. I would call it the you know, Democratic Republic of uh, Jordanian Palestinians, or whatever it's called. And, and I would make them, even the ones here, regain, regain their, their citizenship. That was lost in 1988. I would give them their Jordanian citizenship. Stay here as residents. Uh, but have your, your you know, voting or nationality state be Jordan, which is the original Palestine, which was actually Jewish land that was the original two-state solution, which was the British you know, cut away a huge chunk of our land and gave it to this Hashemite 
total colonialist puppet that was placed in there. So I would uh, do that. I would, uh, I would uh, make it that Israeli Arabs or other Arabs that want citizenship would have to go through a process of proving loyalty. That's the way I would deal with that uh, right there. I would also strengthen very much the Abraham Accords, which is what a person like me, being a nationalist, believes is the future, which is national states getting along. And so therefore I would be a strong Jewish state, surrounded by strong Arab states, uh, working in concert. Uh, I would ally with Saudi Arabia against Iran. I would make Israel to be the local defense contractor in this region for Greece, for, for, for Saudi Arabia, for the UAE. Uh, I would patrol all the way around the Gulf. I would make my navy much bigger. I would patrol the whole Horn uh, all the way to the Persian Gulf. Uh, and I would be the, and I would create rail systems throughout the Middle East like the Turks did. So from Istanbul, that connects to the European rail, to Istanbul, all the way, fine, that was great, I, I, I can, you know. And I would bring it down to Alexandria, and, and down to, you know, Amman, and, and Riyadh, and then to the Gulf states, and, you know, I, I, would, I would make this region the Abrahamic region, that's what I would call it. Maybe that's really the, the way I would call the region, I'm called the Abrahamic region, not the Middle East, and not the far, not the Western Asia, whatever it is, I would call it, you know, the Abrahamic region. I would build up tourism, businesses, a lot of air conditioning, and, um, and you know, the fastest growing cities in America are Las Vegas and, and Phoenix, desert cities, a harsher desert than our desert. Uh, air conditioning is very important, rail is important, and I would make it into a touristic, ancient visitation place. I would make the Bible more important as something for a heritage for the world. Uh, and I would, I would have museums of the Bible and teach the Bible, teach Abraham. I would make this place one of the most beautiful sites. People would come here and be awed by this beautiful city. I would rebuild all these broken buildings um, and just make it, an, an, an Arabs that want to live here will be wealthy, successful with upward mobility. Uh, they'll be proud, Muslims, Arabs, maybe even Palestinians, but they would respect the state of Israel. Um, and I would just, I would see this, this, this whole region flourish. Of course, I would crush, along with the Saudis and other people, I would crush the jihadist, I would, I would crush the jihadist instincts around here and kind of uh, suppress that, that type of thinking and, and push up people who want normalization and, and a successful region. All right, folks, you are listening to the Shai Fleischer Show. I do want to know what you thought of that section uh, of my discussion with uh, Tel Aviv University International students. So write me an email, yishaiyishaifleischer.com. And thank you to Ben Bresky for editing and boosting that audio. Uh, you know, it was recorded on a regular phone by somebody else. Uh, so thank you, Ben. And thank you to all the rest of the folks that make the show happen. Yocheved, uh, Moshe Herman, uh, as I said, Ben Bresky, Tabitha, and Lou when we're live. Thank you very much for all the help uh, producing the show and getting it out there to the world. Thank you to the Hebron Fund. The Hebron Fund is Hebron Fun. It's a way to, to connect with Hebron and to connect with our biblical and historical past and to support and strengthen the people who strengthen our peoplehood by holding on to Hebron. That's hebronfund.org. Uh, but if you go also forward slash tour, you're going to get to our fabulous tour uh, that we're offering uh, throughout the whole summer, more than once a week, at least twice a week, with the one and only Rabbi Simcha Hachbaum. So that's very good. Thank you to Retro Watch Guy 
who's putting out amazing watches and his Instagram feed. If you like men's watches that are just cool, his Instagram feed is tops and it's always appearing on the top. I don't know how he does that, uh, but they have wonderful watches. And I even came up with, a, with an idea for a line of watches to be sold for Shabbat. Uh, we could call it Shabbat Sha'on, which means uh, uh, a watch for the Sabbath, for the Sabbath. All right, so that is issue number, number uh, those are some of our sponsors. And of course, Prohibition Pickle. How much would I love a Prohibition Pickle right now? Check them out at prohibitionpickle.co.il. Some delights, some Shabbat delights uh, for you. Uh, and I, I'm looking forward to especially coming back for meat uh, right after when I get back, we get back to eating meat. If I haven't made it clear, we're within the nine days, which is from Rosh Chodesh Av, the new month of Av, until Tisha B'Av. And we're, we're kind of blocked from, we're, we're not eating meat because we're, we're, we're in a little bit of mourning period. Of course, we're in a mourning period because the temple was destroyed on the ninth of Av. Uh, caveat, we're not just in a mourning period. We happen to be living in a time where we're also pre, not TSA pre, but pre uh, building the third temple. So we're in the, in the period, as we say in Hebrew, likrat, towards. Okay, so uh, you hear that noise. That means I'm getting a little bit closer to the end of the security line. Uh, so why don't we go right now to Malka Fleischer, her interview with Goel Jasper on the fabulous program uh, podcast called Return Again. Uh, great, great Shlomo Kalbach song, great Neshama Kalbach song, uh, which is the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. And Malka Fleischer was interviewed. Now, I'm, I'm just playing a segment, like 30 minutes, from almost like a two-hour show, which I really recommend you listen in general to the podcast Return Again. And, of course, Malka Fleischer, you all know. I don't have to tell you. She's a star. But here's a more in-depth, a real understanding of who Malka is and where she comes from. So that's it. It's time for me to put my bag down here on security. I'll be back. Uh, but enjoy uh, Return Again. Go Jasper with Malka Fleischer. Congratulations. Because you guys are the first husband and wife Whoa, I've interviewed. Thank you. It is a big honor. When I heard that, I couldn't even believe it. So I want you to know. Yeah. When I interviewed Yishai, I started asking him questions. He's like, you know, you should really interview Malka. Really? I think her story's better. Aww. That's nice. So we'll find out. Okay, yeah. We'll let the listener be the judge. <laughs> okay. First question. Yes. When's the first time you ever heard about the concept of Aliyah? The first time I ever heard the concept of Aliyah. Well, I'll tell you that it's not like I didn't know that Jews live in Israel. You know what I mean? It's not like I woke up to the idea um, of well, Jews living the, in when's Israel. When's the first time you ever even heard of Israel? Like, oh, this is something you grew very, up with? From a very young age. Uh, my, grand, my grandparents, my father's parents are Holocaust survivors, mm-hmm. and my father was born in a DP camp. Really? Like in so, Cyprus or whatever? In, in Germany. Oh, actually in Germany. So, so the idea of having, the, the concept of Israel for us and our family, I feel, was really as like a safe haven for the Jews. You know, the Jews like survived the Holocaust and then we you know, created this state and it's like incredible and it's the state of the Jews and we need the state very badly as a refuge for the Jewish people. Um, and my parents, I grew up secular, like bacon. <laughs> That's like, secular. Like tank tops, like extended cab Chevy in Texas. Wait, why, why does extended cab Chevy It's just, I want to give you, well, not necessarily, <laughs> but I want to give you a picture of like a, 
girl growing up in Texas in the South, um, we were definitely Jewish. It's kind of interesting because like my, my, we did not keep kosher like at all, at all, at all, at all. Um, not remotely, not remotely. Like I think like at least 30% of my body is made of pork. <laughs> like, like in other words, it wasn't even a consideration. It was, no, it was not even no. A and in fact, if it was a consideration, it was like, we don't need to do that. Uh -huh. Um, that's, that's like the old antiquated thing that Jews used to do. But at the same time, I grew up with like a very strong Israel consciousness. And I think that that came out of the Holocaust experience. Um, and just like the Jewish pride thing was very strong. And at the same time, my parents, it's kind of funny, like I grew up in like a small town in Texas, no Jews. It was frankly very hard as a child. Um, I grew up amongst Southern Baptists. Right. And like they were mostly okay, but like sometimes not okay. And yeah. sometimes people that I thought were my friends would suddenly come up to me and like invite me to church and stuff. Right. Uh, which I did not do. And my parents, like I was in choir, for example, um, and we did like a Christmas show, quote unquote winter show, but let's sure. just we be all, real. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> it was a Christmas show and there would be like songs about like Yoshki, right? And like my parents wouldn't let me sing them. So I would be standing up in the front of the whole, everybody who came to this choir thing and I would be like standing there and it was like a message. Okay, and like you're not allowed to do that in public schools and one could interpret it as like a church and state protest or something. But like in the reality, it was that I was a Jew and I wasn't going to sing that stuff. And my parents, they even like allowed me like to date, for example, which I didn't really do, but they allowed me to date and I could date anyone I wanted, but I could only marry a Jew, right? Very interesting. It was their psychology. I... I imagine there are other people who grew up like this too. You know, it's funny. I just heard a podcast of Adam Sandler the other day. Oh, really? And he, I don't know if you've ever seen any of his movies, but like, there, there's a lot of Jewish stuff going right. on in it's his like movies. Right, it's like Jewish and gross. And, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and he, he said in the interview that he was asked about the whole Jewish right. thing, you know, the Hanukkah song and everything. He said, I grew up clearly aware that I was Jewish and proud of the fact that I was Jewish, but I grew up with so little right. in terms of really understanding, he referred to it as the ritual stuff, right. that I feel this responsibility to do Jewish things to the degree that I'm able. That's, that's really so nice. like a similar that's kind beautiful. of thing. So like have, not singing those Christmas songs, right. that was like well, It was a real statement for did, us. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I want to say two things about what you just said. First is you have no idea how big of a deal that Adam Sandler song was for me as a kid. Wow. It came out when I was in high school. Yeah. And like there was no Jewish song. There was no Jewish anything clearly and a Hanukkah song and like it was cool and it was Adam Sandler. And I was so proud of that song. Like I didn't wow. care about, I don't know who these actors are mostly and like I don't care. But just that someone would come up with a Hanukkah song and like kids mentioned it to me in school because I was the Jewish kid, right? right. I was, was such it a big deal. that you were like the was you? Jewish kid. Brothers, sisters. I have a sister. She had a less hard time than me somehow. Okay. Okay. Um, she like she um, like melded in better. I was like I was more of a sore like a sore thumb. Yeah. So that song comes out. Yeah, so the Adam Sandler... Oh, so the second thing is that actually for the first few years of my life, I actually went to Jewish school. I grew up in Sherman, Texas. 
Which is near what? Which is 65 miles north of Dallas. But my parents right. joined a carpool of kids who were going to like a preppy school in Dallas. Right. And they sent me to a Jewish school until fifth grade. Okay. Sixth grade, they finally took me out. They thought I was learning too much Jewish like studies and not enough um, secular stuff. And they felt that it wasn't so important. And it was like an hour and a half drive each way. Every day? Every day. So you're, you're, uh, I would get up early, early, like early in the dark. Waking up at five o'clock in the morning. I was waking up at like five, five thirty in the morning, and starting from kindergarten. Wow. Um, and that was a huge masiru nefesh of my parents, like a huge um, personal sacrifice of my parents, like a real investment in time and effort. And I really believe that that paved the way for me to be where I am today, which is a religious Jewish you know, Israel activist in Judea, right? So yeah. um, even though I grew up like, even though the beginning of the story is like pork and pickup trucks, when I ultimately did become religious, right. which was in law school, when I was around 20, 21, um, my parents were enraged. They, they, they completely did not accept it. They were really, really freaked out by it. And we had like some really seriously bumpy years after that for like four years we had some like we were barely in contact yeah but like i am a product of them right that's like the reality the reality is that they put me in this like trial by fire they told me that i was like a jew and they made that important they were always supporters of israel um like like blindly like they just they were just loyal so as a kid i don't know if you remember this yeah but what was Israel to you? You mentioned safe haven mm-hmm. style appreciation and, and that kind of thing. But like, do you remember any anything that took place in that Jewish school that was Israel oriented? Or Yes. Actually, now that you asked me, I do remember one thing. We had a Yom Ha'atzma'u day in right. school. And... I remember this as a kid so well, and they took us, they took us like on a tour of Israel, but inside the school. Cute. So the first thing that they did was give us this like little Israeli passport. Right. Wouldn't it be cool if you still had it? That would be cool. I don't have it. Yeah. But I remember just being like, whoa. Like I, I don't know, there was something, I was little, you know? Like it had your picture on it and everything? I think it might've had our picture and I was just like, I can't. Like you had to write your name into it and stuff. Right, right. And I just remember like being like, I don't know, there was something very like exciting to me about it. And then they gave us falafel, which I'd never eaten in any other place. <laughs> We'd eaten falafel and like there was music, I remember. I don't know. I just remember that being like a really exciting day. And like a really, I don't know, I felt like I was there a little bit. But I didn't know what that was. So I didn't know where that was. Sure. Um, when I was 15, my parents sent me on like a teen tour. Before there was birthright, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. had to pay money to go to Israel. <laughs> So um, my parents sent me the um, JCC or whatever, or the Federation in Dallas was running some trip. And my parents sent me on this trip. It was a six-week trip. Summertime. Summertime. And that was a really, like, again, like a really big investment in their part on trying to make sure I got exposure to Israel. And I just remember, like, being blown away. That was my first time in Israel um, at 15. You come to Israel and you're just like, all these people are Jews. Plus, I grew up where there were no Jews. So, like, look at all these Jews. <laughs> it, was, it was so shocking to me. And then when we would drive around on the bus, I was like, this is my land? 
like this is mine. It, it, it hit you that way. It was part of the messaging that I got as a child, like as a child, and I guess on this trip too, like this is the land of Israel, the land of the Jews. I remember seeing the Golan and being like, this is so insanely beautiful. I remember thinking really? the Golan and the Galil were just the most, like insanely, unfathomably beautiful. I, I couldn't stop looking, like my eyes could not drink in enough of it. <laughs> it was so beautiful. But there is actually one memory. Now that you have, this is funny that we're delving into this trip because I did not think we would talk about this at all today. I remember going to the Kotel for the first time. Yeah. Um, we went on a Friday night, like Friday afternoon, right. whatever Likrata Shabbat is, as Shabbat was coming. And the tour guide very wisely um, did not take us down as a group. Hmm. He took us down to the stairs. Right. And then he would, he would re- I even feel like crying just remembering it. He would release us one at a time to go down the stairs so we'd have our experience by ourselves. Wow, so you'd each have And own. so we each saw the Kotel. Now, I did not grow up religious. Right. But I saw Probably the Kotel. most kids on that trip didn't, right? Yeah, well, it's it was a, a conservative. Trip. It was like yeah, yeah. a conservative. So they did definitely, you know, and they were part of shuls. And, right. um, I don't know what people's personal... We didn't exactly talk about everybody's personal religious level. Uh, but we, it was not a Shomer Shabbat trip, right. for example. Um, but we went down the stairs and I saw the Kotel and I burst out crying and I couldn't control my tears. I was so hysteric. I was hysterical. Wow. I like, I got, I got up to the wall, I remember, and I'm like clinging to it and I didn't understand why. And then it was so, I couldn't, I, I even now I'm like tearing up just yeah, remembering yeah, yeah. it. Yeah. And I think, and one of the, but one of the, the memories that came out um was that i felt and it was again like back to this holocaust experience i felt like all these people who had wanted for so long (laughs) to get to the hotel had finally gotten there because i had gotten there that like i had like that's powerful i had like crying through your show (laughs) i like i had somebody's nose and like somebody's hair color and like somebody's eyes and all these people who had suffered so much and gone through so much and they and they only dreamed of this moment and like I had done it for them. Right. I had made it for them. You know, you're supposed to like write a like a petek like that. I a little note. like a little note to put in the hotel. Yeah. I wrote like two pages. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like squished it and crammed it and like it totally did not go into yeah, the hole yeah, yeah. and like I don't know what happened to it I just left it there but um, and you know when I got back on that plane I just want you to know like I didn't think to myself that was actually not my first Aliyah moment um, I I did not think to myself that I was going to make Aliyah I knew I would come back to Israel right um, my As first a visitor right my first Aliyah moment was actually when I started dating. In law school, this Israeli guy who told me that he would not really go out with someone, like we just started to go out, and he said, like, there's no, we can't really take this any further unless you would be willing to move to Israel, because I'm moving to Israel after law school. And that was actually my first Aliyah moment when I realized I had never even thought of Aliyah, ever. Like, even in that powerful moment when I was 15 years old. I'd always thought of Israel as this like other place that you come to visit, right? That you yeah. come and you like, maybe you do like a spiritual recharge or you right. like get, re- you know, buy good tchotchkes and like eat a ton of falafel and like get filled up with that and then go home. Coca-Cola t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> or like, don't worry, America, Israel is with you, guns right. and Moses, like all that stuff. Yes. Um, 
And I was just like, how is it that I never even thought of moving to Israel? And then I realized that I could move to Israel. That was my first Aliyah moment. Ishai was offered a job at a news company called Arutz Sheva, um, which is an Israeli news provider, which also has an English website. And they had like a very, very, very basic radio station. And they wanted a guy to like live in Beit El and to just like if the machine like pops off to like sh turn it back on, like stuff like that, like really, they didn't want much from him. But we felt, and they had found him because, not found him, but they kind of accepted him because he'd been writing all these, these articles about Aliyah and right. publishing them there. Right. And we got on the plane and we, and we came and we went to live in a place called Beit El, which is like a place in the Bible or something. Like we didn't know so much about Beit El and Isha like went for his um, like little orientation meeting with the boss and I went to like go get a snack or a drink or something and I found this like little grocery store Makolet okay I went yeah. and found this grocery store and it was closed because it was between the hours of two and four like that's how things used to work in Israel like they would do like the siesta thing yeah. and I was just like what like I had just <laughs> lived in New York City right. and I was just like oh my gosh like how am I gonna live in this place is totally crazy I didn't speak any Hebrew nothing nothing Glida maybe yeah. like I, I knew not Shalom like I knew <laughs> nothing and like I can't even get like a juice between the hours of two and four I couldn't right. believe it so that was like shocking but I'm like all right like um I've already been through some stuff like I just go with the flow you know and like we have this whole entire job and we moved into now we happen to be on the last flight before a four month port strike. There used to be a lot more of that around sure, here. Sure. Um, and so like we came with like three suitcases and that's all we had for four months. But it was OK because we moved into a, a furnished apartment. So it wasn't so, so bad. And then we had this chance to move into a caravan, which is like a trailer home. Yeah for uh, novices. Um, <laughs> we moved into this trailer home on a mountaintop in Beit El, and it was just awesome. Like, we lived in that caravan for six, six and a half years. I think we're getting there, and I think the people really want to. And so I tell the kids, like, be strong and keep, it, keep on the track, and history is progressing. And, and we are trying with our sometimes teensy ways and sometimes a little bit bigger ways trying to make it better. And like, it's your job also to make it better. It's our great merit to live in the land of Israel. Merit is not the word. As I said before, the, you know, there was a, there's a girl inside who remembers that you know, all these generations of people have been trying to get to where I am, and now I'm here, right? right? That girl from the Kotel. So Ishai got this job at Arutz Sheva when we first moved to Israel. And I also got a job soon after that, also at Arutz Sheva, writing news. And then pretty soon, um, Ishai is like full of positivity and full of ambition and he um, wanted to like grow the radio station that had like two shows on loop all day no joke okay so like he news. started a show I started a show then we brought on some other people you know anything about that <laughs> I guess I was one of them yeah. that's right <laughs> um, so we we created this like gorgeous little radio station it was amazing it was amazing. Um, it was amazing. It was. And a lot of the people who were involved in that are like still crossing paths all the time. Like here we are. Okay. So now I am through uh, both security and passport control. 
and I continue to broadcast to you from one of the strangest ways that I've ever broadcasted in my uh, long and illustrious career of broadcasting, uh, and that is in the airport on, on just walking, strolling, and, and just... Uh, uh, you know, doing two things at once. I don't like to say killing two birds with, this, uh, with one stone. I don't like that expression. I'd rather enliven two birds with one gesture. I don't know what... I, I'm not trying to kill two birds with one stone. But... Uh, and I don't like to kill time, those expressions that I try not to, to use. But in any case, um, I am walking down the famous ramp. It's famous for me because, uh, you know, I, I travel a few times a year. So I know these ramps. And um, I'm going down to the mezuzah the big mezuzah at the end uh, of this ramp, which leads me to the lounge. And soon I'll be in the lounge. I'll probably close my eyes. It's also quieter there, so it's easier to do radio as I'm walking down here. It's a more public type of space, and everybody's uh, loud and excited. In any case, uh, what did I want to say to you? I'm surrounded by Israelis. God bless them, uh, my brothers and sisters. And we are all going somewhere. I'm going to Dallas. They're going, a lot of them look like to me they're going on vacation. Just got that look and feel to it already. Uh, and that's really fun for everybody. I'm going to work and wear a suit. They're going to wear shorts and chill. So I'm a little bit jealous. Uh, but I hope to get some vacation with the family, with the kids and the wife uh, on the way back home. I really do hope you enjoyed uh, my talk with Tel Aviv University students uh, at the beginning of the show. And just now, uh, Maka Fleischer with Gold Jasper on Return Again about her life. It's really great stuff. Thanks again to Ben Bresky for all that editing, Yocheved, uh, Moshe Herman, uh, Tabitha, and Lou when we're live for producing the show and helping get it out. That's 3.45 in the morning here in Israel. And I'm about to kiss the big mezuzah on the way out of Eretz Israel. Um, but as, as Rabbi Nachman told us, wherever I walk, I walk towards the land of Israel, <coughs> to the land of Israel. <coughs> Now, uh, thank you very much to the Land of Israel Network and to also our, uh, my um, new hosts at um, Israel 365 News. That was my kissing of the mezuzah right now. Let's kiss it together, okay? I like to look into the mezuzah and I like to see that it says, it says, La'avotechem, to your forefathers. I promise this land to your forefathers. Um, back to what I was saying, Israel 365 Israel365news.com Great news website uh, for biblical consciousness uh, and their uh, amazing product which I'm so proud to be a sponsor of or they're sponsoring my show remember it's 3.45 in the morning here and that is The Israel Bible TheIsraelBible.com TheIsraelBible.com <coughs> I'm, I'm just looking right now at the lounge I cannot believe it is completely packed I'm going to stand here until the end of the recording that I'm going to take a picture of this pack lounge. And it's got Jews and Gentiles and there's a lot of Arabs and Christians and Muslims and all kinds of folks. Amazing. I see people wearing Israel team shirts and all kinds of stuff. Really neat. Uh, what's behind all of that? The Israel Bible. That's behind this whole story of the Jewish people. And so to check out theisraelbible.com and give coupon code Yishai. You get 10% off. Bang. Uh, the word of God. Baruch Hashem. Um, I want to thank also the good folks at Prohibition Pickle. Would love a salami sandwich with uh, with some sauerkraut right now. It's not going to happen because of the nine days. Uh, but soon after the nine days, when I come back uh, and go on my own vacation, I'm going to be sure to take some Prohibition Pickle with me. 
Uh, and check out uh, Retro Watch Guy, uh, who makes uh, who who provides us with the uh, amazing opportunity to get a, just a classic watch uh, and wear it with pride and enjoy it and give a spouse, a father, a son a great present uh, and help uh, Retro Watch Guy connect to Israel as well. So check out RetroWatchGuy.com or their excellent Instagram page. Uh, and check out HebronFund.org, HebronFund.org. Uh, they protect the Jewish community of Hebron and you're a part of it. Uh, when you go to hebronfund.org and especially when you go visit our tour, hebronfund.org forward slash tour. Uh, so there's a lot of sponsors to the show, but the most important sponsor is you. Uh, and you can sponsor the show every time, uh, like my friend Krista does often, like she did last show, uh, by just going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Yishai. And you can just buy me a coffee, a virtual coffee, and thereby support the show or support the big projects like the Israel Biblical Highway. Uh, and the beautification of Hebron stuff that I'm doing all through going to ishaifleischer.com and to the donate page. Okay, that's all financials and, and all the support and all those things are so, so important. Uh, but I just want to wish you guys an easy fast on the 9th of Av. Uh, I'm pretty sure we're not going to have to fast this year because we really do believe in our heart uh, that the redemption is very, very near. Uh, but if, if not, if we do have to fast this year for the 9th of Av, it just means that we're not done yet fixing what needs to be fixed and we're on the road we're on the road to beautification to fixing it to rectification to restoration and to being a nation that's right restoration nation restoration nation that's really what we are uh that's it i am be tired i'm blessing you i'm excited i'm 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 airbound uh, to dallas see you at cpac <clears throat> if you're heading out there and if not, lots of love and lots of blessings from the land of blessings. We're all heading towards the land of blessings. It's just a question of, you know, when our time is. Uh, and if we're going to really, the real question is, if we're going to maximize the opportunity of this life. Thanks again to everybody. And that's it. Wish me bon voyage, as we say uh, in French. And lehitraot be'ahava mi'eretz to be To see you soon. Uh, with love from the Holy Land. Stay tuned, stay strong, stay connected. Toda Rabbah and Shalom.